you want to read along, we're going to be reading out of 2 Kings chapter 18. And I'll be reading 2 Kings 18, 19 through 23. And Rabshakeh said unto them, Speak ye now to Hezekiah, thus saith the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this wherein you trust? Thou sayest, I have counsel and strength for the war. Now on whom dost thou trust, that thou rebellest against me? Now behold, thou trustest upon the staff of this bruised reed, even upon Egypt on which if a man lean, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, unto all that trust on him. But if you say unto me, We trust in the Lord our God, is not that he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away, and has said to Judah and Jerusalem, Thou shalt worship before the altar in Jerusalem? Now, therefore, I pray thee, give pledges to my lord, the king of Assyria, and I will deliver thee two thousand horses, if thou be able on thy part to set riders upon them. Please be seated. Well, I'm very grateful for your presence today and for the wonderful way that you've entered into our worship service this morning. Beautiful singing today. Thank you, Jonathan, and for the prayers and, and for the scripture reading. Thank you very much for that. And for all of your attendance this morning is always very grateful and very appreciative. We look forward to being with you tonight at 6 o'clock once again. A rather cold, chilly day. But you've decided to be with us, and we're very grateful for that and for your faith in Christ Jesus and your desire to worship God faithfully. The word tsunami is a Japanese word. It means storm wave. Tsunami hit East Bangladesh in 1970 and killed 200,000 people. In 1900, hurricane hit Galveston, Texas. One of the worst disasters the United States ever had. Thomas Edison went down to Galveston to take photos of it, to record the event. The point is not so much how many people died, as how quickly they can die. We've all had experiences with car accidents, diseases, Killings throughout wars in the world. A lot of people die. The fact of it is not so much alarming to us as to how quickly it can happen. Paul talks about troublesome times in 2 Timothy chapter 3. How that they can come upon us. And I'd like to talk a little bit about that today. What troublesome times first of all look like. And I have a few points that I'd like to make about that for your study and your consideration this morning. Have you ever faced troublesome times? Sure you have. I've faced them, you've faced them. I'll tell you a fellow who faced some troublesome times, that was Noah. The world was destroyed, and only eight souls were saved. God made preparation for the saving of those souls. Noah and his sons 
the wives. Eight precious souls were saved on that occasion, even though the rest of the world, given itself to wickedness, perished. Noah looked right in the face of trouble. Moses looked at trouble. There he told the old Pharaoh, let my people go. God wants them to leave this land, to go out into the the desert to worship him. And he was facing trouble right in the face. First of all, Pharaoh let them go, and then he goes after them. It's a great deal of trouble. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego looked at Nebuchadnezzar right in the face, said, we're not going to bow down and worship your image. You can throw us in the fiery furnace if you wish, but we're not going to worship your image. They were facing trouble right in the face, weren't they? Old Naboth Naboth had a vineyard. The old wicked king Ahab coveted the vineyard. He wanted it. Cost him his life. He was looking trouble right in the face. Wasn't even his to sell, really, by means of rights of inheritance and the rules of inheritance of their day. And so to take the vineyard for himself, he had the innocent man killed. He's looking at trouble. 700 years before Christ, you have a king that's really looking at trouble. In fact, if you uh, turn over there in 2 Kings chapter 19 with me, you'll see how he says it in verse 3. They said to them, Thus says Hezekiah, This is a day of distress, of rebuke and of disgrace. It was a day of trouble. What does trouble look like? Let me explain a little bit what's going on in our lesson text today, and it'll help us understand the difficulty that Hezekiah faces. And then I have three points that I want to make out of this particular section of the Scripture. I'm in 2 Kings chapter 18, and I hope you turn to that passage in the pages of your Bible, because it does talk about a very interesting event that happened in the long ago. The first thing I'd like to make mention of is the fact Hezekiah was a good king. And that wasn't always the case. You have northern Israel who was ruled and reigned by northern kings and all of them were wicked. And then you have southern Judah who was ruled and reigned by kings. And most of them were wicked, though there were a few exceptions of righteous kings in the days of the Old Testament monarchy. And here's one of them. Here's one of the exceptions. His name is Hezekiah. And it talks a little bit about Hezekiah in the beginning portion of Second Kings chapter 18. But it does say in verse 3 about him, And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. Those were the false gods children of Israel were given to at the time. He tore all that down. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord, verse 5, the God of Israel so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him, for he held fast to the Lord. Uh, It just goes on and on telling us what a great man Hezekiah was. Hezekiah was a great man and a great king for the children of Israel, but Hezekiah was a weak king. Even though he was very great in the sight of the Lord, he was weak. I need to tell you the story about another king. His name's Sennacherib. If you read the chapter, 2 Kings chapter 18, 2 Kings chapter 19, 
you're going to read about this character as well. Sennacherib is an Assyrian king. Assyria was a world empire in the northeastern portion of the ancient Near East, and it's really asserting itself throughout the world. It is conquering this nation, that city, that city, that nation. It's really going through. Now, they were very wicked. Uh, You'll remember that uh, Jonah was told to go preach to the city of Nineveh, which was an Assyrian city. He didn't want to go. He left and went the other way. But you'll remember that great story, how that God brought him back by means of that great fish. And in turn, he went and preached, and the city repented. And what a great story the book of Jonah is, and a great prophet of the 8th century. And so it tells us about how wicked the people really were. If I might use a a historical illustration or two, you'll begin to see what the problem is in the day of distress, what it was like that Hezekiah faced. You see, the Assyrians were so wicked, they'd come into a city and they'd line everybody up. And they would say, okay, we're going to take you and take you, and they'd pick out another one. We're going to take you over here, we're going to take you over here. Cut their feet off, cut their hands off. And let everybody see how bad we are. And let, and let everybody see what's going to happen to you if you try to rebel against the king of Assyria. Now, the king of Assyria at this time is Sennacherib. And he's making a power sweep down through the ancient Near East. He's already taken the northern kingdom of Samaria in 721 B.C. He's already done it. Now, when he would go through and uh, take a city, he'd take all the people captive and make slaves out of them. Then they would take salt and they would throw it all down across the territory and across the city so that nobody would come and re-inhabit the city. It was worthless. After the Assyrians came through with a scorched earth kind of policy, nobody was able to live in the city where an Assyrian army had gone through and destroyed it. And they took all the people and they made slaves out of them. And this is what happened to northern Israel, the Israelites of the north. And in this portion of the Bible, when it talks about Samaria, it's talking about northern Israel. Samaria, the capital of northern Israel, has been destroyed. And the people have been transported to other regions. As we study further into history, we learn that these people became the Samaritans of the New Testament as they lost their Jewish identity, and there in turn they became the Samaritan race, hated by the Jews of Jesus' day. This is what Hezekiah faces. Now, if that weren't enough, the king sends his main man out there, and the main man has a title, and that title is Rabshakeh. If you read 2 Kings 18 2 Kings chapter 19, much of the chapter is about the speech which the Rabshakeh gives to the people on the wall. So the children of Israel are there in Jerusalem. Assyria has already taken northern Israel. Now he wants Jerusalem. Now the king is demanding 300 talents of silver, 30 talents of gold. And Hezekiah hasn't got that kind of tribute to pay. Now if you don't pay the tribute, we're going to destroy you. And he's searching around, seeking everywhere he can. He's scraping the gold off the temple to try to raise enough gold to pay the tribute to Sennacherib, the wicked king of Assyria, because he's afraid of what will happen. And the Rabshakeh stands out there with 185,000 soldiers. It's more of a title than a name. And uh, he says, I want to tell you something. And the officials of the king, Hezekiah, up there on the wall, they said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Don't talk to us in Hebrew. Talk to us in Aramaic. 
You see, they didn't want the people of Israel to hear the demands that the Rabshakeh was making in behalf of Sennacherib, king of Assyria. But he sees through that. He speaks right to them in the Hebrew language. He says, now don't be like these other nations. You see what's happened to them? If you follow suit with them, we're going to destroy you just like we destroyed them. If you follow their lead and try to resist us, we're going to destroy you. And we're going to do this to you. If you don't pay the tribute and pay it now, don't think that you're going to be able to go down to Egypt and get help from them. They're just a crushed reed. They can't help you. And don't think your God's going to be able to help you because all these other cities, all these other nations depended upon their God and look what we did to them. The only option you've got is to pay up or suffer. And Hezekiah says, this is a day of distress. This is what trouble looks like. This is real trouble. What are we going to do here? We don't have the money to pay the tribute. He's going to destroy us. What happens is, Hezekiah spreads it before the Lord. That's an Old Testament way of saying he goes to God in prayer. And God has a man down there that's doing his will, and his name is Isaiah. And God reveals to Isaiah, you go back and you tell the king not to be afraid of the Rabshakeh. Don't be afraid of, of uh, Sennacherib, because I'll tell you what I'm going to do. They are not going to harm my people. And I'm going to do this for David's sake and my name's sake. I'm going to protect the city of Jerusalem. They're not going to do it. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to destroy the king of Assyria, Sennacherib. You know what happened the next morning? After Isaiah had delivered that message to King Hezekiah, 185,000 Assyrians woke up in Hades. God stopped their hearts, and they died. And in turn, Sennacherib goes back to his hometown in Assyria. And you know what happened to Sennacherib? The text tells us in chapter 18, chapter 19. When the king went back after that devastating loss, trying to fight against God, he goes into his palace and his temple to worship, and his two sons came in and assassinated him with a sword. And his other son, Asherhaddon, becomes the king of Assyria. That's what these two passages are about. That's what these two chapters are about. And I wanted to discuss them with you today because I wanted to, first of all, look at what real trouble looks like. Sometimes we think we have trouble, <clears throat> and we do. You've looked trouble in the face, and I've looked trouble in the face. But when I look trouble in the face here and I try to see the trouble this man faced... I saw three things. You know who's acting here? It's Satan that's acting here. This is Satan working behind the scenes. And one of the first things I need to recognize with regard to trouble, Satan is the greatest terrorist that we've got to face. You know that we talk about Islamic terrorism today. Radical Islamic terrorism is a big buzzword that's used a lot in the media today. Basically, you know what a terrorist is. A terrorist is one who tries to use fear in order to get your compliance with him. He's going to try to use fear in order for you to play ball with him and do what he wants you to do. That's the element of fear. What motivates 
this particular terrorist is Satan. He's the greatest terrorist we face. Just like Sennacherib tried to use this power play against Hezekiah, trying to create fear, Satan was trying to use this man and use fear as a means of compliance. And you can see it unfolding in the text of 2 Kings 18, where he's saying, now don't depend upon God, don't depend upon Egypt, don't depend upon these other things. You play ball with us, you do what we tell you to do, so that you can avoid the horrible consequences that are on the horizon for you. Don't think God's going to help you. He's trying to use fear. He's a terrorist. And that's the motivation behind the work of Satan. To instill fear in our hearts. To make us afraid. He destroys the souls of men. But not only that. He's trying to do that to put a slap on the face of God. He wants to destroy men. He wants to destroy souls of humankind. But I think sometimes his main purpose is to insult God and to slap God in the face and try to hurt the people of God, the creation of God. That's the action of Satan. When you face trouble, you've got to look at what's really behind this particular matter. It's Satan working behind the scenes, doing what he can through this medium or through that person or through that element. Somehow or another, he's trying to create fear in our hearts so as to cause us to lose our soul and insult God in the process. You remember back in the uh, temptations in Matthew chapter 4, I thought of this. And there he says, then the devil took him, that is Jesus, to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain, verse 8, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said to him, verse 9, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And I thought, you know, he's trading all those souls for the Son of God. But he's glad to do that. He's glad to trade all the souls of all the kingdoms of the world so that the Son of God will bow down and worship him. And praise be to God that Jesus refused that temptation. And he said, uh, he told him, It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God. Him only will you serve. That's verse 10. I've been reading out of Matthew chapter 4, and I've been looking at how Satan acts. And that's the point. When you're looking at trouble in the face, you're looking at Satan, and his work somehow is trying to cause fear in my heart. You know, Satan had the world in his back pocket. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 7. God was even sorry that the time they had made man for every thought and every heart of man was continually evil. And God destroyed man because of his wickedness and saved Noah, eight precious souls by means of the ark and water, First Peter 3, chapter 20 and verse 21. But look how he had everybody wrapped up. His action was so powerful, so forceful, everybody was going along with him at the time. And you'll remember Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis chapter 19. Out of those two cities of the plains, how many were saved? Three. 
thousands of people giving themselves over to Satan's action, the fear element, the temptation, giving themselves over to it, and only three saved, Lot and his two daughters. His wife was turned into a pillar of salt as she turned around and looked at the devastation that God was raining upon those ancient cities of the plain, who now live in an appropriate place beneath the Dead Sea. What's the action of Satan? But we've got rabshakas out there right today trying to instill fear in our hearts and trying their best to get us to compromise the Word of God or reject the plain teaching of the Word of God. You ever hear of Peter Singer? Peter Singer is an Australian philosopher, teaches at Princeton University. He's a hedonistic utilitarian. Peter Singer says it's all right to abort little babies and kill them if you want to. There's nothing wrong with that. But we certainly want to liberate the animals. This is a rabshakeh trying to convince us we should not follow the Word of God and we should not follow the way of God. This is Satan acting in the background, trying to work through individual people, causing us to compromise our faith and causing us to fear rather than stand for the truth and stand for the Word of God and out of faith live the way God has told us to live. Hebrews chapter 10 is an interesting passage which admonishes us and encourages us not to give in in this way to willful sin. For if we go on sinning deliberately, verse 26, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there are no remains, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be destroyed or deserved by the ones who have trampled underfoot the Son of God and profaned the blood of the covenant by which He was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? Don't give in to Satan's action when he tries to work in the background to harm you to hurt your soul. But when I saw 2 Kings 18, I not only looked at what trouble really looks like and saw Satan's action, I saw man's reaction. How are we going to react to this? How did Hezekiah react? 2 Kings chapter 19, he said, this is a day of trouble. We've got real problems here. How shall we react? Not only do I need to study very carefully Satan's action, but I need to study very carefully the reaction. This is trouble. We're in trouble here. Seemed like as a kid, every time on the way home, walking home, that's when I'd get into trouble. After school was over, on the way home. I had to always be careful about uh, going home because I thought, am I going to get in trouble today? Probably. That's just the way it seemed to go after school, walking home. Sixty-six books in the Bible, 109 times the word trouble comes up. You know where trouble comes up and man's reaction to it? In the book of Job. We're studying Job in the ladies' Bible class on Wednesday morning. And there's some wonderful passages that talk about the fact of it, that trouble comes to every one of us, and no one is immune to it. And how are we going to react to it is the real question. Well, notice in chapter 3. And let me 
peruse casually through some of these passages out of the book of Job that will illustrate the point that it does come to all of us. Trouble comes our way, doesn't it? Chapter 325. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I'm not at ease, Job says, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. You understand the story behind the matter of Job, how that Satan came to Job and took away his family, took away his possessions, and took away his health. And the three great things that we prize so much, family, possessions, health, whatever order of priority you might put them in, he lost it all. He says, trouble comes my way. Chapter 5. This is Eliphaz. He had three friends, really four. The three main speakers that come to Job, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, try to give their interpretation of this terrible suffering that the man is going through. He tells us in um, this particular chapter, this is Eliphaz speaking, probably the oldest of the three friends. He makes this statement in Job chapter 5, verse 7. But man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. You know, it just seems like it's a natural thing to happen, doesn't it? You build a flyer and the fire goes upward. The flames will go upward and the sparks fly upward. Trouble comes our way. And it's just like that. It's just natural for us to face trouble like that. Turn to Job chapter 14. And we could go all the way through this book picking out Bible passages whereby Job is talking about the fact of trouble. Chapter 14 and 1 is a rather popular passage. Man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. You see, a woman is frail. And what she produces is frail. Man who is born of woman, a frail being. He also is frail. Man who is born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble. The brief life of, of man is certainly spoken about in this particular passage, which indicates something of the fact we all are going to face trouble. New Testament people face trouble. I'll tell you someone who faced trouble, and that was Jesus in Luke chapter 10. He faced problems. Luke chapter 10 and verse 41 you have this particular passage, and it comes in the context of Mary and Martha, and he's in that close association with them at Bethany, and involved in that, he says in verse 41, But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. It's a wonderful lesson involved in Mary and Martha and the attitude which they had in this regard. But he told her, he said, you are troubled about many things. It happens to us all. That's our reaction to problems of life. John chapter 11 is the death of this particular loved one, Lazarus, and it comes uh, an interesting element when Jesus comes to Bethany. He learns of the matter of Lazarus' death, Mary and Martha. Both of them eventually come and they meet Jesus. And they say to Jesus on his arrival, you know, if you'd been here, he would not have died. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping, 
and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. He was greatly troubled, even Jesus. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept, verse 35. He couldn't keep the tears from coursing down his face because of the trouble. He was deeply grieved by the matter and turned any number of reasons, a discussion within itself on why the Lord wept that day. In fact, that word wept, it's the only time that particular word is used in the original text. Jesus was so troubled, so grieved over the suffering of others that he couldn't help it. Tender-hearted like he was, he just wept, wept, and wept. In John chapter 12, Jesus again, my, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. It's an interesting verse in John 12 and 27. In that passage, he's very much in the shadows of the cross and it's going to happen. He knows it's going to happen. He knew it all along. And I think the translators may have missed it here somewhat. He says, my soul's really troubled. But what shall I say? Shall I say, no, let this trouble pass from me? No, it's for this very purpose that I came. Now is my soul troubled. Then what shall I say? You know, I I haven't got anything to say about this matter. I don't know what to say. I don't know what words to say, Father. Save me from this hour. Should I say that? No. But for this purpose I have come into this hour. It's the very reason I came here. Was for this hour. I'm not going to try to skirt it or move around it. Though my heart is filled with a great deal of trouble. The reason the Savior went through this is because of Satan's action and man's reaction that man followed the lead of Satan now in turn needs a Savior. Turn with me to Psalm 46. Psalm 46. What a great psalm that is. I enjoy the reading and the study of the psalms. This is one of my favorites here. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. We are not sure the occasion behind the writing of Psalm 46. Can't be sure what it was about. Can't be sure about the historical setting behind it. It seems pretty clear from verse 6 and also verses 9 and 10 that the city of Jerusalem is facing a foreign enemy, a very powerful enemy. The nations rage, verse 6. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. He makes war cease to the end of the earth, verse 9. He breaks the bow and shadows the spear. He, per- he burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. It seems, many expositors think, that this particular passage might have been written out of response to God's dealing with Sennacherib and 185,000 Assyrian footmen who died in one day because of the power of God. Whether that's the case or not, I do not know. I know this, verse 1. Man's reaction to the trouble 
God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. He's a present help in trouble. So many of you have been very kind in the matter of uh, uh, expressing kindness toward me and my family. My brother passed away this past week, and it came as a shock to us all. I didn't mean to please excuse a personal illustration, but uh, it came as a shock to us all. He's 58 years old. He's a fine, fine young man. And he had um, a problem with his heart. We didn't know he had any problem with his heart. And evidently, the aorta somehow tore, and he died of an aneurysm. And uh, this might have been caused due to the work and, uh, which he did. He did a lot of underwater diving, and he had several licenses to dive in Alaska, and repair pipelines, repair ships. He actually had discovered underwater a sunken Russian sailing ship that had been lost for years, and he found that. And now it was on, it's on the charts as to the location of that. When he told me about it, I said, did you look good and see if there's any gold in there? He said, yeah, I went through every bit of it. said, the only thing that was worthwhile, maybe some hinges and doorknobs. And he said, I just left that. I didn't take any of it. But now it's on the record as to where it is because of what he was able to do. This kind of work, perhaps, the pressure of it uh, was difficult on his heart, and uh, the tension of it probably led to some of this, and he passed away. Uh, Part of the problem, what he had could have been treated, but he waited all night with it, went to the hospital the next day. By the time in the emergency they diagnosed it, they saw that they couldn't deal with it. And so they sent him to Seattle, Washington, by flight, which was over two hours from where he was at the time. And by the time he got there, it was too late. They just didn't have the facilities. They didn't have the doctors. They didn't have the skilled care necessary to deal with that kind of injury. And thus, he left this life and went on to the next. I think about that, and I want to thank you for your kindness and your expressions, but I think about that when I look at Psalm 46 and 1. He is a very present help in trouble. Now, they may not be able to have the right facilities for me when I need it. It may be that the doctor that I need, the hospital that I need, may be way over there, and they can't get me there in time. Or it may be that the very thing that I need may be way over here on this side, and I just can't get there in time. And thus, I can't get the help that might otherwise be able to help me. But that's not true with God. He is a very present help in trouble. Doesn't matter where you are or what you've got. God's there. That's man's reaction to the trouble that you face. You trust in God. It may be that a hospital's not available. It may be that a doctor's not available. But God's available. He can help you if it is His divine will. I want to talk about God's satisfaction. When I look about this time of trouble and this day of trouble that Hezekiah faced, I see something of Satan's work behind the scenes. And I see something of man's reaction what it was and what it should have been, and my reaction to the time of trouble that I face. 
but also see something of God's satisfaction in the matter. God destroyed 185,000 people immediately. And you might think, well, why did God do it that way? Why didn't God just open up the gate, let the armies of Judah march out and destroy them for themselves and really show Sennacherib who's boss in this territory? Well, God didn't do it that way. God did it His way. He did it. He did it immediately. He did it completely. He delivered them absolutely. And it let everyone know who is God. It wasn't the God of Sennacherib that was in charge. It was Jehovah God that was in charge. When God had his man down in Egypt, Moses, he tells Moses, go to the Pharaoh and tell them, let my people go. And Moses wouldn't do it. And so God sent terrible plagues upon the Egyptians. And that tenth plague, that last plague, the plague of the death of the firstborn, how devastating that was. And it would be remembered in the hearts and the minds of the children of Israel for centuries as the Passover put the blood on the doorposts and on the lintel. And when the death angel passes over, he'll pass over the house of the firstborn who, does not have, who has the blood. But if it's a house that doesn't have the blood on the doorpost and on the lintel, the firstborn of every house will be destroyed, will lose his life. God did it that way because he wanted Pharaoh to know and the children of Israel to know who really is God. This is God's satisfaction in the matter to let us know God's in charge and we can remember it and we don't forget it. That God makes these decisions with regard to life and health and death and dying. That it is God's in charge. And that we turn to Him. Though we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, we will not be afraid. I'd love to go on in Psalm 56 and talk more about this particular matter, but I think it'd be sufficient for us to say in verse 11, The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. It's God doing His will, and everybody knows that it's God. Now, I'm not trying to say that God took him away. I'm not trying to say with regard to my brother that God took him in that regard. I'm not trying to say that that was God's will in this regard. I'm just trying to say that we give glory to God in both good days and bad days, and we do not question His divine will in the matter of our lives. That's God's satisfaction. Now, I say that in my own heart and in my own mind, thinking about the man Job. Because here's a man who really questioned. And he really questioned. He didn't understand why he was going through this suffering. And he really wanted to know, why am I having to face this? Like, I, I don't deserve this. I didn't deserve the f- suffering that I'm getting. I've lost everything, and I'm on a razor-thin edge between life and death. In fact, he said, I'd rather just go ahead and die. And I don't deserve what I'm facing here. And he questions, and he questions. But then at the end of the book, it's made very clear that Job maintained sufficient faith in God, that he was pleasing to God. And thus knew that he could not question God. And that's the way it is with us. We are not in a position to question the will of the Almighty. We're not in the will, not in the position to question and say, God, and I say this accommodatively, please understand that. 
you made a mistake. I, of course, do not mean that. I say that accommodatively to help us understand the point. We're not in a position to question the will of God. We accept the will of God and we embrace the will of God. We ask God's blessings to be upon us because He is God. And that's the point we should learn God's satisfaction. When you face trouble and you look at it right in the face, there's Satan's action, man's reaction, and God's satisfaction. And it teaches us that He is God and we're the creation. And we serve Him and glorify Him in this life. And we're with Him in eternity for the same. If you never obeyed the gospel of Christ, I urge you to do it today. Is there a a hand in here that would say, I never faced trouble in the face? Well, if you could say that, honestly, you will face it in the face. It'll come in some form or another. The question is, how shall we react? And what shall our attitude be? Let us praise God in the good days and the bad days. To do that... You must repent of your sins, Luke 13, 3. Confess your faith, be baptized into Christ for the remission of sins. Be added to the church of the living God. If you've been unfaithful, turn that around by repenting of your sins and make a clean break with sin and give God the glory for your life. And I urge you to do it now. Won't you come? While together we stand and while we sing.